Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name's Ben, one of the pastors here. And today we're going to be in the book of Philippians. So if you have a copy of the scriptures and you want to turn or you have a digital copy, you want to tap your way to the book of Philippians chapter 4 uh, as we start a series on anxiety. Well, we keep trying to tell our kids this because they've only ever lived in Utah, that Utah is awesome. Like they don't understand that if you could live a lot of different places, you would still do a lot worse than Utah. If you love living here, you probably love it for many different reasons. We have the beauty of the mountains everywhere, the natural beauty of Utah, which is still arresting, I hope. Like maybe when you first got into the state, you would do that where you just keep gawking at like the view. And Rachel and I would always text each other about like the view. Have you seen the view from Starbucks though? Like, have you seen the view from the back of Target? Like, have you seen, because everywhere has these beautiful views. And, and maybe you do that less over the years or decades, but you still have an incredible view. Best snow on earth, great access to the ski resorts, just a wonderful place to live, um, mostly. Uh, so in Utah, we have like higher than national average education, higher than national average uh, household income. But here's one thing that we're not only bad at, we are the worst in the nation. So according to a U.S. Department of Health study um, in 2019 and 2020, Utah is the least mentally healthy state in the union. Like out of all 50, we're number 50. You think about that. We're worse than Mississippi. <laughs> like we're worse than Washington State. We're worse than California. We're worse mentally than every other state in the union. Process that for a moment. That means that while the people you're walking around may have access to great nature and maybe you're doing okay financially, they may also have some really big problems. Uh, in February of 2021, 40.9% of Utah adults reported feeling symptoms of anxiety or depression. That means almost half of the adults in our state reported feeling anxiety or depression symptoms. So not just being afraid, but having those things happen so often that you start to experience the physical symptoms of regular anxiety. That's half of us. Now, I, I don't know uh, what your experience with fear is as we talk about it as a concept. Obviously, everybody's felt fear, like you've watched a scary movie or you had a roommate jump out at you or like you've had experiences of fear at some point in your life. But when we're talking about anxiety and fear, we're talking about a regular experience or something that doesn't fit within the sort of normal walk of a human, but something that's consistent, something that colors like your every day. And I want to talk about it. I want to talk about it because Jesus, as he comes, doesn't just come with truth. He comes with all of this healing but the healing, of course, is leading people to understand the greater truths that are there, the things that will actually give them the healing from what they actually need to be healed from. And I think this fits into that same category. We live a really stressful life as Americans, not in the same way as, you know, people in other countries, maybe. And we experience anxiety, but, but I don't know that we always trace it back to what it's coming from. And as believers, I don't think we necessarily tap into the resources God has for us when it comes to fear and anxiety. I mean, again, as a state, we're not really doing great on this. In fact, we're the worst out of the whole country in this. How do we figure it out? How do we get a little 
better. If maybe you think to yourself, no, I, I know that he's talking about fear and anxiety, but it seems a little soft. Like there's a big time in our country where everybody needed to be in therapy. And you say, are you, are you in therapy? No, well, you need to be. No, I don't. You're in denial, right? Like you would just immediately assume that they are so far gone, they don't even realize their need for therapy. And I, I'm trying to become a counselor and I disagree with that. I think very few people need counseling like daily or weekly or annually. But for some of the people that do, it's great. However, Many of us are negatively motivated. We, we avoid the experience of feeling fear because it's an unpleasant feeling. But if we avoid feeling this unpleasant feeling, we actually invite worse things into our lives. So, so what is fear? We, we avoid the unpleasant feeling of fear because when it comes, it's something that we'd rather not feel. Imagine being in your kitchen and the fire alarm goes off. When the fire alarm goes off, it's awful. It's so loud. When it goes off, it's in your ears and in your head. It's shaking your bones. It's the worst thing. But wouldn't it be worse when you heard the fire alarm to just try and drown it out by turning the music up? Like it's an option. You can do that. I don't know how loud the music would have to be if you've got a good fire alarm. But you could just try to drown it out. Go to a different place. Imagine you're in your doctor's office. And you got these symptoms you're describing to the doctor, and the doctor goes, yeah, you know, the test came back, and actually, I got to tell you, you've got, and before they get it out, you just punch them in the face. (laughs) Just stop the whole interview. You get angry because you don't want to feel afraid of whatever they're going to tell you, so instead, you choose anger, and you just sock them right in the jaw as hard as you can. Just stop that mouth from talking before they say something that you're going to have to then deal with. Now, of course, if you go about doing that in your life, you're going to have a lot more problems because, of course, you still have the disease, whatever it was going to be. You also have a lawsuit and need to find another doctor. And in Utah, that's hard anyway, much less if you're like a doctor-punching patient. But (laughs) it's a way to deal with fear. We often do both of those things. One, you know, the music thing is, is just trying to drown it out. Can we just stay busy? Can we distract ourselves out of it? Well, okay, but that fire alarm was there for a reason, right? Like car alarms are terrible. They don't help anybody do anything. They just go off when you lean on your keys and then you're freaking out and the kids are trying to understand what's happening and the dog's barking. They don't work. But good alarms are very helpful. Doctors, even when they give you bad news and in like a snooty way because, you know, some doctors can be really proud of themselves, are a good thing. They're telling you something wonderful I don't know, maybe it's, it's awful that they're telling you about this disease, but if they don't tell you, you can't try to get it fixed. If you're a Christian, you might even have a third reason for trying to avoid an experience of fear. So in Philippians 4, we get these verses. And, and as we go through them, you may experience like, oh, I feel like that's a familiar kind of verse or teaching to the Bible. And it is, this kind of stuff comes up a lot. Philippians 4, in verse 5 and following says... Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And we go, wow, great. Um, But, (laughs) you know, if you're a Christian, what he said there was first a command. Don't be anxious. 
That's a crazy command. My oldest daughter started middle school, and the big rule for sixth grader was, for the first two weeks, you are not allowed to panic. If you don't know where you're going or you're late to class, don't panic. It's fine. You, you know, somebody will help you. We'll get it figured out. You're not going to be in trouble. For the first two weeks, your number one rule is don't panic. And we laughed about that at our house, and we made jokes about it, where Caroline's about ready to go to school, and we'd be like, Caroline, don't panic. Don't panic, Caroline. Whatever you do, don't panic. Like, like the rule of don't panic makes you kind of nervous that you're going to panic about panicking, and it just sort of folds in on itself. Well, does the Christian experience that? Does the Christian experience that as, as a rule that we are not supposed to be anxious? And the Christian's like, okay, well, I need to serve the poor and I need to share the gospel and I need to lead my family, but whatever I do, <laughs> don't be anxious. God help me, please. No, I, I can't be anxious. I definitely can't disobey that command. And then even if you get past that piece, there's a promise that's sort of connected with it about the peace of God surpassing all understanding, guarding your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And you go, okay, well, you know, Lord, I was trying to pray and not panic, but I certainly don't have peace that passes all understanding. So am I not one of those people? Like maybe that promise is for God's people. And if I experience so much fear, and so little peace, maybe I'm not one of God's people. Well, that's more terrifying than anything else we've talked about today. So what I want us to do is just take a minute. I want to take a minute to listen to the fire alarm. I want to take a minute to just hear from the doctor. I want to understand this text in the right way and what God says about fear in the right way so that as a people, we can start understanding not only how to deal with fear in our own lives, but how to be a people that can point others to the comfort that we've received through Christ. So, so what is fear? That's our kind of first question today. What is fear? Psalm 27, one through three says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. That sounds very psalmy. If you've ever read the Psalms, this is the kind of stuff you see a lot. We talked about this for a second last week. The most common command in Scripture. Do you know what it is? Well, if you're here last week, you already knew. It's fear not. That's the most common command in Scripture. You think it's going to be about like lust or greed or something. But no, the number one most frequent command I don't know that it's the greatest command in Scripture, but it's the most frequent command in Scripture is stuff like this. Fear not. Whom shall I be afraid of? Whom shall I fear? When we're trying to describe fear, I think these kind of verses help us to understand it. Just take a moment, put it on a whiteboard. He's describing how he won't be afraid, even though his life is under threat because of this other experience, because of this God who's going to tip the scale and change the circumstance. But he's tempted by fear. He's tempted by fear because something that he loves, namely his life, is in danger by these evildoers, these adversaries and foes that want to eat up his flesh and, and make him stumble and fall. A biblical counselor named J. Alistair Groves and Winston T. Smith wrote a great little book called Untangling Emotions. I'd encourage you to read it. But in there he says, fear 
whether mild uneasiness or abject terror. So fear, wherever it is on that scale, just a constant sort of buzzing in the back of your ear or like sweats and not being able to sleep at night, has a simple message. Something you value is under threat. Now, that may seem really stupid and easy. That may seem like something really profound. But let me try to help you understand why this is so useful. This means that when you feel fear, you can ask this question. When, when alarm bells are going off, you can ask this question. What do I value that's under threat? And what is that threat? See, there's um, this idea that it would be really great not to feel fear. As though God gave us uh, a life without fear, and then after the fall, we started experiencing all this fear. And I think that's right. I think if we had been in the garden forever, we wouldn't have experienced fear, certainly not in the same way. But after the fall, we, we experienced it a lot. It's our daily bread. But fear, you have to be careful about what you're talking about here, is an emotional reaction to your understanding of a situation. If the situation's bad, fear is actually a helpful thing, just like an alarm bell is a helpful thing. It'd be great to live without fear, but really what we should mean by that is to live a life without circumstances that create fear. Saying you want to live without fear is like saying you want to live without pain. That sounds really cool. There's a Bond villain that had that ability or disability. He got shot with a bullet, and it was like working its way through his brain, killing his nervous system. But on the way, it turned off his ability to feel pain, which made him a way more impressive Bond villain. I looked it up. His name was Reynard, and Reynard couldn't feel pain, and so he was getting like more and more powerful as he was going along until, of course, you know, it killed him <laughs> because, of course, it's going to. Like, if you can't feel pain, it sounds great until you realize just how terrifying that would be. Like we want to be Superman who doesn't experience damage or pain. To say that you can't feel pain, but you still take the damage, well, that's not great. We, we want something that alarms us to the fact that something's wrong. Fear is an alarm telling us that something's wrong. Something you love is under threat. Now, that's a good thing. It means you love something, but it also means you got something you have to deal with. Fear should create in you action. We talk about fight or flight as a common response to fear, and that's true. You have a part of your brain that's a little deeper down that God gives you so that when something happens, you can immediately react and you can think about it later. But when you get to a place where you're in a little bit of a calmer mode, the rest of your brain can kind of tap in and start arguing about what's going on with this fear. And as God gives you fear, he's giving you an alarm to help you see that something you love is under threat. So, so then, if that's what fear is, what do we do with it? What should we be trying to do when we experience fear? Well, the first thing I want us to think about is just listening to the fear. This is the first big hurdle. It's what I was talking about earlier, about how you would rather like turn up the music or punch the doctor. Like, I would rather be angry than be afraid. Let me choose anger. I, I would rather be distracted than be afraid. Let me watch more stuff. Like, like, let me keep the YouTube app open all the time. And just as we're talking, that's cool. But as soon as we're done, maybe I could start listening to something as I go. Like the proliferation of the earbud everywhere and the like, you know, descending knockoffs or whatever, where people just got something going all the time. Why? 
Well, because they're geniuses and they got to get that much content into their developing minds. Eh, maybe. You know, the, these podcasts that are three hours long, why? I think people are hungry to just have something going so they're not thinking about something else. There can be a lot of things. We're painting with a broad brush here. But the first thing we want to do is just maybe stop for a second and ask, what am I afraid of? What, what's the threat that I'm experiencing? And what is it a threat to? So what do we do with fear? The first thing we need to do is just listen to it. Ugh. Uncomfortable. Maybe you need somebody to hold your hand while you do it. Call a friend, have a coffee, talk to a spouse, talk to a mentor. But sit down and say, what am I afraid of? Listen to it. And then start to examine it. Say, okay, is what I'm afraid of realistic? Is this even reasonable? Is the thing that I love something that really is under threat? Usually the answer is yes, but, but take a second to just even analyze and say, okay, if I am afraid, what do I love and how is it under threat? If you can take a second to do that, you take a second to just sort of restore the original purpose of fear. You may find when you do that, the thing you're trying to protect is something that you shouldn't protect. There's a whole category of fear, which is being caught. Do you experience fear, but really it's got a lot to do with guilt and shame? You know, if you have a, an addiction, something that you wish people didn't know about, you, know, you look at pornography maybe, you can experience a lot of fear that way. Fear that you're going to be caught. That's in that book, that Alistair Groves' uh, um, Untangling Emotions book, he talks about that. Well, if that's the case, all right, let's move forward with that. Let's work on that. We talked about it two weeks ago, about how we're going to restore one another in a spirit of gentleness when you're caught up in sin. Sin isn't something that we're scared of here at Oak Church. We want to say no to it in our lives and try and avoid it as a group. But when someone's caught in it, we jump in. We don't run away. I've been the recipient. I've been a Christian now for 25 years. Wow, you don't look that old. I know. But I have. I've been a Christian for 20. I got saved when I was 13. I've been a Christian for 25 years. And over that quarter century, again, wow, I have experienced countless times where other believers have walked with me to restore me. Sometimes it's heavy stuff. Sometimes it's more normal stuff. I'm, I'm talking to people all the time about my emotions and, and my experiences and maybe some things that I wish I hadn't done and they're helping me think through that and maybe do that a little bit better. That's what Christianity just is. Okay, that's one category for fear. But what if it is something that you should love? You know, you're afraid of, of losing the house. You're afraid of your health going south before you really set a good sort of future for people that depend on you. Maybe you are afraid of the job going away or making you have to move and you're thinking about what would that look like for kids in schools. You, you're thinking about your marriage. You know, you haven't really done anything and she hasn't really done anything, but the just things seem really tense right now. Maybe it is something that you should care about. Maybe it is something that you should fight for. Well, what do you do with that constant fear. Paul's telling you, and he tells you by example of what he does with his fear. So in Philippians 4, the first part of that chapter, he actually begins by talking about a situation that's creating a lot of anxiety within that church. He says in verse 2, I entreat Euodia, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Those are lady names in like Greek culture 2,000 years ago. I ask you 
also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He's describing something that would be anxiety producing, which are mature Christian women who are fighting. And they're fighting in a way where it's making the noise all the way back to where Paul is writing this letter. Mature Christian women, not crazy, intense ladies, but just people that have done ministry side by side with Paul and Clement and all these others, whoever the true companion he's talking about is. And they're fighting. It's, it's, it's creating a lot of tension within this church, apparently. He's describing something that should create anxiety, something they love Namely, the church and the gospel witness of the church, the effect of the church in that community, is under threat. They should experience anxiety in that sort of situation. Paul describes, as David referenced earlier, his own experience of anxiety about just such a thing. He says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me. Doesn't anxiety feel like pressure? A daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches that I've planted. Who's weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Christianity is not superheroes that have set down their fear. Paul, who's being held as an example for us, experiences fear because he experiences love in a fallen world. If you love something and there's danger around, you should feel fear. The question is, in Christ, what do you do with it? Because he doesn't stay with that fear. He says in Philippians 4, and this is that command we talked about earlier, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He says, experience fear. That's going to happen. You're supposed to love God and everybody. The problems that are going on with people, that's everybody. You're going to have a ton of experiences of fear for people that you love. But when you experience that fear, instead of trying to distract yourself and letting it grow, instead of letting it spin out, he says, you take that fear to the Lord. There's a guy named David Pallison. He's passed away, but he's this really great biblical counselor. And he wrote a little pamphlet on anxiety. We're going to buy a bunch of them and have them available for people that want to grab them. But in that pamphlet, he talks about trying to take in your head a distinction very seriously. He said, all right, imagine you have a circle that's six inches in diameter. So six inches across, maybe, you know, both your palms. And in that little circle, you put everything that's your job to do today. Brush your teeth, you know, go to the bathroom, take care of the kids, make sure that there's food on the table. You know, like the stuff that's your job that day, put in that little six-inch circle. And then he said, within that, uh, around that circle, draw a, a six-foot circle that goes all the way around you. In that circle is all the stuff that God's in charge of on a daily basis. Gravity, the sun rising, your metabolism continuing to work. Whatever the thousand billion million things that an infinite God in his infinite sovereignty and his infinite strength and wisdom causes to happen on a daily basis. 
on a minute basis, on a second-by-second basis, taking a moment to just count that stuff out, realize that that six-foot circle is not even six foot. It's a lot bigger than that, but it's just hard to kind of mentally grasp something that's a lot bigger than that, but bigger than that. What we do as believers when we pray is a couple of things. One is those two circles. We realize what we can do, and what we're asking him is what he has to do. We're we're inviting him into this equation. The, The circumstances that you're experiencing are thing that I love, danger to the thing that I love, and my fear about how I'm going to handle it. When you pray, what you're doing is you're remembering that, yeah, there are some things that you need to do about your fear. You're going to be called to to action, not inaction. But that action is going to take place at the same time as and in a a terribly, an incredibly small degree compared to God's action in that situation. You put God into that equation, you realize that he's going to be involved at every level. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying by everything, your, your anxiety, you're not just turning it off artificially. You're turning it off because you realize that God is, in fact, in control. And once you put him into the equation, you start thinking about something else. There's a reason that this is the next couple of verses. It says in verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever is lovely and commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul says that once you have identified what's going on and brought God into that equation, start thinking about other good things. There's a really great biblical counselor, again, a guy named Brad Hamrick. He's my uh, sort of boss in my program that I'm doing right now. But this is what he says. He says, notice that this doesn't downplay the problem. It doesn't ask you to be unmoved. It does call you to remember that you're in a good story being written by a good author. Paul isn't asking Christians to pretend that bad and hard things don't exist. That's denial, not faith. What faith is, is realizing that while there are some really dark chapters, this is a good story. (laughs) We're, We're in a really good story being written by a really good author. Yeah, there's some scary stuff happening right now. But he's got it. Now, here's a third question. Because if you get some grasp on what fear is, and you get some sort of bare bones grasp on what God kind of commands you or offers you in the middle of that, and you start doing it, you're going to realize that you're still really afraid a lot. (laughs) So here's the third question. Well, what happens when it doesn't get that much better? Like, You know, you said all this, Paul, and thanks, but what happens when it doesn't really feel better? When I still feel an incredible amount of anxiety. I I think that happens a lot. Well, as soon as that starts to happen, I want to just invite you in. I want to ask a couple of more questions. What is your relationship with God like? There's a difference between saying, hey, God's got this, and believing that God's got this. And the difference has to do with your understanding of God and his relationship with you. As soon as I say, hey, man, it's okay, God's got this, there's an immediate question that might come up in your mind where you go, can he, though? Like, is he strong enough to do that? Because what I'm talking about is pretty awful. 
It's relational. It's going on within the will of a person that I love. They're making these terrible decisions. Can God fix that? Okay, maybe he can, but will God fix that? Does he care about that person enough to want to do that? Does he care about me enough to do that? Okay, he can, he will, but, but would he even hear me when I talk to him? Like other people, they can probably talk to God because they're probably godly, but I'm not. I'm terrible. Would he even hear my prayer when I cry out to him because everything's breaking? Well, when you just take out one verse, like don't be anxious, you forget everything that's around it. In chapter 3, Paul's already talking about this. He says, indeed, I count everything as a loss. He just talked about all the things that people think of as righteousness and how his life actually showed not just those things, but like those things to the highest degree. You're trying to follow the law? I was a Pharisee. You're trying to do this stuff? I did more. And then he says, but I don't see any of that righteousness. I don't see any of that goodness as a good thing even. I count everything as a loss because of the greater worth the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all these things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from my doing from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I don't know if you're following all that. That language can be a little clunky sometimes. But what he's talking about is what we call the gospel. When I said I became a Christian, I'm talking about this experience. It's the experience of saying that I can't earn acceptance before God. God's there and I've broken his law. We're not okay. And I can't fix the fact that we're not okay. We're separated. But Jesus has come, being both God and man, to live a perfect life and become a perfect sacrifice. Now, that's mechanism talk. I'm telling you how something happens. What I'm telling you happens is that he makes a way for you to be forgiven and brought back into relationship with God. And not just like allowed to be around him, like all the way back in relationship with God, like adopted into his family relationship with God. And if that's true, then you can start putting to bed all of your questions about could he help, would he help, will he help, will he help me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he will. Why? Because he's already done the bigger thing. Paul could have confidence when he goes to God with his anxieties because God has already taken care of his greatest anxiety, which is his sin before a holy God. If God will do the more, won't he do the less? It's the same as saying a dude loves you so much he buys you a Lamborghini. Oh, I would love it. I can't fit. I've seen them. They're really actually pretty small if you've ever seen one. But they're, they're sexy. I don't know why the car can be sexy, but they are. If you see one of those and somebody says, you're great. I love you. I don't know if you can even fit, but I bought you this Lamborghini for you because I love you. And you go, wow. Would you then feel anxious about asking for like a piece of gum? Seems so stupid, but I'm trying to help you see how stupid it is that he would give you the gospel. He would give you his son and that you would be scared to ask about like next month's rent. That's a stick of gum, baby. That's, that's nothing. Even if it's something, it's not next month's rent. It's the soul of your kid. It's, it's something huge. I'm telling you. 
There's a greater thing, and he's done it. He'll do the less. Two, Paul learned that. It says in verse 9, What you have learned and received and heard in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul, in verse 9, in effect, is saying, You remember the time I spent in Philippi. Those were stressful days. You saw me wrestle with anxiety. You heard me wrestle with anxiety in this very letter. So please, don't be self-conscious about your struggle with anxiety. Recall my example to stifle the sense of stigma that often accompanies anxiety and do the kind of thing you saw me do. What's he saying? He's saying it's okay. It's okay. God's got this. He's got it in this specific situation, but he's also got it in the bigger situation, the fact that you're doing the stuff you're supposed to do and you still feel really anxious. Give it time. The Apostle Paul was working on this hard. It's going to be hard. If you're a believer in a fallen world, you're a soldier in enemy territory. Yes, you would long for the war to be over, but the war is real. And while the war is going on, there's anxiety. Yeah, you want it to be over, but it's not over yet. Kids and I, we were watching this video, and there was this uh, person interviewing their grandmother. It was this really old, she looked like a Korean lady. And they're like, what do, you, what do you hope for for this year? What are your goals for this year, Grandma? And she went, oh. She had an egg. She was like tapping on the counter. Oh. And they said, uh, what are your goals? And then like another generation person, like maybe the mom in between the grandma and the grandkid, said, to live another year, like making a joke. And the grandmother went, oh, I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was like, oh, preach. You know, like that's, I feel that. I'm ready. I'm done. But no, we're not. (laughs) We're not. And if we can trust in the Lord that says in the middle of all that, I'm with you, then with Paul, we go through this experience and we get to a place where we can say with Paul, Verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need. I've I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, what we've done is necessarily skim. We've had to talk high level. The next three weeks, we'll still be skimming, but we're going to talk about specific fears. We're going to try and take this stuff and apply it in a way that that helps you to see that a lot of Bible really does cover this stuff. Whatever your fear might look like, can I just ask you to come back the next three weeks? Not a huge commitment, but, but if you would, just start looking at this stuff and talk to somebody. Talk to God right now. Talk to a person this week. Can you just make a a task on your phone? You're allowed to do that right now if you want to. Just make a task on your phone to to text somebody and say, hey, man, you got time? Can I buy you lunch? Can you buy me lunch? Can we have coffee? Can we just just chat? I got some stuff I want to talk to you about. And just lay it out there. You're not going to have somebody go, ew. (laughs) If it's somebody here, hopefully they're going to go, yeah. Let's talk about that. Maybe you'd let me be involved in that process. I'd love to. But just take a moment to examine this stuff. Stop running from it and go to the only one who can really fix it. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I ask for your grace on your people. You say in uh, 2 Corinthians, in the first part of it, 
that we comfort others with the comfort with which you have comforted us. Lord, our ministry to the world is first and foremost a ministry of reconciliation. We're telling people how they can be with you again, but that may not be a place that most people can start. They may have to start with the fact that they're really afraid. And in Jesus, they have the resources to be less afraid. (laughs) Okay, blind people came, Lord, and you healed them, knowing they would lose their sight again in death, but but you healed them, hoping that seeing you are good and seeing that they can see, they would see that you're the light of the world. I pray, Father, that as we experience your comfort as a good God, we would be able to comfort others with that same comfort. Give us the grace, Father, even if we're not fearful people. Maybe there's some really brave folks here that just don't experience that. Awesome. But give us the grace to see this stuff and experience it well for, for others as well as for ourselves. And as we do this, Father, we pray that you would glorify your name in your people and in this city. In your holy name we pray, amen.